Good morning, everyone. It is so nice to be up here again with you guys. I was here four weeks ago when we kicked off uh, our series Dwell, and uh, I have been watching the last couple weeks, Ray. Ray's done a great job the last couple weeks, right? Can we give Ray a hand? And we are in part five of the journey that we're on, uh, looking at this idea of God's desire to dwell with his people. Uh, When I was here four weeks ago, we talked about a loving God who desires relationship with his people. That is a reflection of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so out of that, he created people. And then we saw that people are valuable. People are created in God's image. They are created with sacred value and for a sacred purpose. But unfortunately, people then disobeyed. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world. And we have an enemy. And so the dwelling that God desires with his people, it was damaged. It was damaged by that sin, death, and the enemy. A couple weeks ago, you heard about how sin has been defeated. You saw last week how death has been done away with. And today, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the enemy and how he is defeated. Uh, All of this is in the context of these are the things that, that are barriers or blockades to us dwelling with God the way that he created us to dwell with him. So we're gonna talk a little bit this morning about the enemy, about the devil. This is actually something that when I was growing up, we talked about in church somewhat regularly. I feel like we don't do it as much anymore as we used to. Uh, I grew up uh, in the 80s and early 90s, and we would often... Uh, talk about the enemy. There were some very popular books that were written during that period of time uh, by a man named Frank Peretti. Uh, They were fiction books, but they kind of uh, were a look into the spiritual realm as the way that he imagined it. I think I actually even heard Frank Peretti speak uh, at church one time, but with those fiction books, there was kind of this idea that, that we were very aware all of a sudden of the enemy. And we were very aware that there's a spiritual world. And and sometimes there were some people that went so far that they they saw kind of a demon behind every bush. Like if I were to trip down these stairs, it would have been a demon that did it rather than my own clumsiness. You know, we can overemphasize the kingdom of darkness sometimes. Okay, and I think that that happened at different times in the church. Uh, But then after the 80s and 90s and, and those books weren't as popular anymore, I didn't hear nearly as much Uh, talk about the enemy, about the forces of evil. It kind of started to become something that wasn't as common uh, until I moved to South Africa. And when I moved to South Africa, in the continent of Africa, there's just a much greater awareness of the spiritual realm. And there was, again, in my life, I heard a lot about demons. I heard a lot of uh, stories that just I didn't really have a a box for. Uh, I saw things that I had to think, how does that fit with my theology? Uh, And so once again in my life, it became a little bit more real. And I think today what we wanna do is we want to take a look biblically at the posture that we should have towards the enemy. We don't wanna overemphasize the power of the enemy and see a demon behind every bush, but we also don't wanna be so naive to think that there's not an enemy. You know, there was a a very well-known movie, I think it was in the 80s or 90s, called The Usual Suspects. And in this, there's a very famous quote that's kind of been passed 
down through the years that the villain in this movie, as he was kind of slowly revealing himself, he was the main character and you didn't know that he was the villain. He said, the greatest trick the devil ever played is convincing the world that he does not exist. And so we don't wanna deny the existence of the enemy, but we don't wanna give the enemy more credit than scripture does. And so we need to find a balanced perspective on this. So today, we wanna go into scripture a little bit and we wanna see what can we see about this adversary, the enemy, who has impacted our ability to dwell with God, and then what does that mean for us as believers? How do we interact with that? How are we to walk in victory over this enemy as we sang about this morning? So that's just a little idea of where we're going, that we are trying to examine the three barriers to dwelling Sin has been talked about already, death has been talked about, and now we are going to look at the enemy. So with most discussions, we should probably start somewhere in the neighborhood of Genesis. Uh, That's where a lot of conversations always begin. And the very first appearance of an enemy or of Satan that we have is in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 3. We know that he appears as a serpent in the garden. He begins to lie to Adam and Eve. He begins to get them to doubt the promises of God and trust in themselves rather than in God. Of course, that results in their sin, which leads to death. And after that happens, there is a curse or a uh, consequence of this that is placed on the enemy that we will see in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. So let's Read that together. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, or division, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see that the, uh, that the serpent has a curse placed on him. And we see that there is going to be a continued opposition between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So that was one of the tensions you know, that Satan tempted Eve. There was tension there, there was division there, but that isn't going to stay just with those individuals. It's going to spread. It's going to go towards all of Eve's offspring and it's also going to include the forces of evil. Now, right at the end of those consequences, though, we also have that beautiful passage that is the first prediction that a Messiah will come and will reverse the curse of sin, the penalty of death, and will destroy the enemy. When in the second half of verse 15, it says, he goes from talking about many offspring to talking about one. He shall bruise your head, Other versions say he will crush your head, crush the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So this offspring that was going to come from Eve, there was going to be a continued tension with evil, but it was out of that very same offspring that Jesus was gonna come, amen? Amen. And he's going to be the one who restores dwelling, who reverses this curse of sin, of death, and of the enemy. So we know As soon as sin enters the world, the enemy's days are numbered. His head will eventually be crushed by him, by he who we know to be the Messiah, to be Jesus. So that's the first thing we see in scripture. That's our introduction 
to the enemy is that he is introduced as being present, but from the beginning, he is introduced as going to be defeated. That's very important for us to see. The next, a uh, couple other passages in scripture that we can just see more information about the enemy. In 1 John, verse 3, 8, it says the reason that the Son of God appeared, the reason that Messiah Jesus eventually shows up is to destroy the works of the devil. So again, what posture do we see scripture indicates with the devil? He is defeated. His works will be destroyed. Some other scriptures really give us the idea of when this will occur. And for this, we're actually gonna go all the way to the book of Revelation. So in a matter of moments, we're going from Genesis all the way to Revelation here. But if we flip ahead to Revelation, we have a very visual representation of Satan's defeat in the book of Revelation. And uh, Revelation describes things as no other book. It describes it in a very visual form. But this should be things that you're already familiar with. There's not new information in Revelation. Oftentimes, it's saying something that's been said elsewhere in Scripture, but in a very visual form. So look at this in chapter 12 of Revelation, starting in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, sounds like Genesis, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimonies for they loved not their lives even unto death. This passage in Revelation is a very descriptive and articulate picture of Jesus's first coming. And that it was at the first coming of Christ, the virgin birth, the sinless life, his death and his resurrection, that by those events of Jesus becoming and fulfilling all the promises of the Messiah, he defeated the enemy. That Revelation paints a very vivid picture, but Jesus said it pretty clearly in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus himself said, I see Satan falling like lightning. And it was in the context of when he sent his disciples out two by two to share the gospel. Now, we know it wasn't at the first coming that Satan literally fell because he was present in the Garden of Eden. So he had already fallen hundreds and thousands of years before that. But Jesus is describing the victory over the enemy that the first coming accomplished. That by Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, the enemy is defeated. He's not destroyed yet, but he is defeated. The picture of the enemy's destruction is later in the book of Revelation with the events surrounding the second coming. And if you go a few chapters ahead, to Revelation chapter 20, we see the eventual end of the enemy in verse 10. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we have just done an incredibly quick Genesis to Revelation look at the enemy. 
in a mere five to seven minutes. But what we see here is we have an enemy who is real, but scripture from cover to cover portrays him as one who is defeated, defeated by Jesus, and that was accomplished at Christ's first coming. That defeated enemy will be destroyed finally and for all of eternity at the second coming. So what does he do while he is defeated, but while he's still here? A couple verses talk about this. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, seeking someone to devour. So the enemy is active. He's prowling around. He is seeking to do damage, but it is from a defeated position. We have to remember that the damage that the enemy can do is limited because he's already defeated. He is not all powerful like God. That could have brought an amen. 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 And finally, probably the most well-known verse that we have about the enemy is John 10, 10, that simply the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Scripture in many ways doesn't tell us a lot of things about the enemy that we would love to learn. It actually is not very clear on where the enemy came from. That is usually as you're teaching Bible classes or in your Bible school, at some point, somebody says the age old question, where did evil come from? Okay, and we can speculate, we have some maybe ideas, but as far as chapter and verse that perfectly explains all of that, we actually don't have that. We don't have one verse in this Bible that tells us exactly where Satan came from or exactly how he fell, but what is absolutely clear And what we have to trust is the most important thing for us to know is that he's defeated. That is the most important thing. If it was absolutely essential for us to know exactly where Satan came from or exactly how he fell, if that was essential to the success of our Christian lives, I am confident that God would have put it in here probably more than once even, probably many times. Instead of telling us those things, which are, I have curiosity about that, I have questions about that. I have some ideas that I think may be the case, but I can't see from scripture 100% how those things happen. But I can stand up here very confidently and very boldly and say, scripture is 100% clear that the enemy is defeated. Amen? Amen. That is good news for us. And one of the ways that I, I like to describe this idea of how we've got a defeated enemy who's not yet destroyed is in the context of a sports game. I'm a sports fan. Uh, I'm a Phillies fan, by the way. Hey, we're moving on, all right. That is, a, that is definitely proof that the enemy has been defeated. The Braves have been defeated. All right, all right, I'm getting off course a little bit here. But uh, the picture that really helps me understand this defeated, not yet destroyed is in the context of a sports game. Okay, and so I, I, have a, I brought a picture with me of a baseball game, uh, and you see this, this player walking off the field. The game is over. They have lost the game. It's over, but he's still on the field. Okay, another way that we can look at this is that a team has been defeated in the Super Bowl. Okay, so the game's outcome is finished, but they're still on the field. And that's kind of like the enemy, that the outcome of the game has been decided. The enemy has lost. 
It is over. Jesus has won. Jesus is the champion. We sang about that today. But the enemy, as a defeated foe, he still has a long walk to the locker room. He is still on the playing field. And as he goes, he might pass some opposing players and throw an elbow. He might pass some opposing players and, and discourage them, or even worse, say some really foul things to them. He is still on the playing field, but the game is over. And the enemy is walking that long, slow walk to the locker room to get off of the field when he will finally be destroyed. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that as the lake of fire. So we have a defeated enemy who's still on the playing field. But it's absolutely imperative that we know and that we realize everything that he does on the playing field today is from a position of being defeated. That is the most important thing for us to know about the enemy from scripture. So how does this fit into dwelling? How does this fit into our series uh, that, that says, what, what is this impact that the defeat of the enemy has to help us return to the kind of relationship that God desires? So I have uh, four reasons today why the enemy's defeat is important to us as believers and it impacts our ability to dwell with God. So the first uh, reason uh, and thing that is accomplished through the defeat of the enemy is that our citizenship is changed from Adam to Christ. And this would come from the book of Romans. This would come from chapter five, uh, where Paul is comparing that everybody is born in Adam, born with sin, born that, uh, and ultimately will be facing death. But when there comes to knowledge of Christ, their citizenship changes. They are born again into a new family. They're born into the family of Christ. And if you read through chapter five of Romans, you will see all the things that people can expect when they're in Adam, but then you also see the contrasting ideas of what you can expect when you're in Christ. So one of the verses that really demonstrates this is Romans chapter five, verse 19. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, talking about Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. When sin was our master and when the enemy had dominion over this planet, our citizenship was in Adam. What we could expect from life was sin, death, judgment, condemnation. But when our citizenship changes to that of Christ, we can expect life and peace and righteousness and justification. So the enemy no longer ruling over this planet through his defeat, it enables believers to have their citizenship changed. We might have an American passport or a South African passport or some other passport, but we also have a passport that says we are citizens of heaven. Amen? All right. So our citizenship is changed from Adam to Christ. Number two, we now have a new master. No longer is our master sin or the enemy, but now our master is Jesus. Romans chapter six describes this transformation. And in verse 22 and 23, it says this. It says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit 
you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Because before this, the wages of sin is death. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now that we have a new master, no longer sin, no longer death, no longer the enemy, we will get to experience true life because that's what Master Jesus gives us. He gives us righteousness. He gives us the ability to have eternal life. Aren't you glad that we have a new master? It's no longer sin. If you want to read more about that, Romans chapter 6 does a great job of showing us that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now actually slaves to righteousness, which God gives us freely. It's an amazing gift. So we are no longer slaves, but we have a different master. No longer slaves to sin or slaves to death or slaves to the enemy, but if we are slaves to Jesus in righteousness, what, what does that kind of slavery look like? So point number three this morning is that our new identity is that we are slaves to Christ. Now, that word carries a lot of baggage, slaves for a lot of people. Because when we hear that word, our brains and our, our cultural context ultimately goes to civil war slavery, it goes to oppression, it goes to very, very foul things that have happened on this planet. But if we are being called slaves to Christ, we wanna make sure we have the proper understanding of what it means biblically to be a slave. And what it means especially biblically to be a slave to Christ. And slavery in the New Testament had a very different context than Civil War slavery. And so when we hear this language, if we bring our current cultural understandings to that, we can get a very different interpretation of what God is actually saying. We have to remember that, the, that scripture was written in the first century, most of the New Testament. We have to remember especially that passages in Romans were written to the church in Rome. And we have to ask ourselves, what was slavery like in those contexts. There was actually over a million slaves in Rome at the time that Romans was written. So this was a very common thing. This was something they would have been very familiar with. There were elements of first century slavery that were prisoners of war or that were captives, you know, as you conquered other lands. But the majority of the one million slaves in Rome were not slaves by force. They were slaves by choice. And they were slaves by choice because it was a way, an institution in which you could actually earn a living. The way that first century slavery worked is that if you wanted to offer your services in slavery, you would uh, generally be employed by a master, usually for six years. And in exchange for your service, you would get a wage, you would get a salary, and you would have a place to live at the master's house. And since it was for six years, it actually provided some economic security. It provided uh, a sense of stability for your family that you knew where you were going to live and you knew how you were gonna earn a living for six years. So many times, people would offer themselves into slavery for that job security. If we were to use a common term today, we would say this would be some blue collar type work that people would do. They would work around uh, the farm or the, uh, and they would help out with the crops. They would help out with the animals. They would perhaps help them in the house with the housework or with the children. It would be normal jobs. The only thing is you were under a contract. 
And if you broke that contract, there was penalties. So you could not do anything you wanted. You still had to honor the contract. And in the first century, they were not very creative about their variety of penalties. There was usually one consequence for all kinds of things in the first century, and that was death. So if you were a bad slave, you could be killed. If you were a disobedient slave, if you stole from the master, the penalty was death. But if you honored the agreement, if you honored the contract, you would receive a salary and you would have a place to live. You would have security for six years. So this is the context that we have when we talk about slavery. And it's into this context that uh, that we see what it means to be a slave to Christ. I want to read uh, Romans chapter 3, 23 and 24 to give you a, a glimpse of what this slavery to Christ looks like. In Romans 3, 23 and 24, we start off with the sinfulness that we're also aware of now. It says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all equal in our need for God and in needing the restoration of dwelling. We are justified by his grace as a gift, and this is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that one word in that verse 24, redemption, that is a word that would leap off the page to the first century believers. You know, we, we hear the word redemption and we might think about coupons or we might think about, you know, gift cards, you go redeem a gift card. And, you know, if I could stand up here and try to preach using the word redemption and a 21st century concept, I could find a way to make it sound really great that Jesus is our coupon. But that sounds a little cheap, doesn't it? Like Jesus is our five cents off or quarter off, or maybe if we're really lucky, we get a whole dollar off, okay? We don't wanna just be redeeming coupons because that's not the context that this was written into. We want to see why would this word redemption have leapt off the, the page or, or stood out as they heard this letter read to them. Well, redemption is a word that's connected to slavery. And it's set in the context of this first century slavery where people would offer their services and they would serve for six years. And redemption was something that a master had the ability to, to do. It was a right of redemption. That when he acquired a slave, that slave would expect to serve the master for the next six years in exchange for a salary and a place to live. But since the master has the right of redemption, he has the ability to give an incredible gift that is very rare, but it is built into the system of first century slavery. So if a master decides they want to uh, redeem a slave, they would go, they would bid on the slave, they, they must pay the most amount of money, which says that's their salary. I'm willing to pay the biggest salary. That slave becomes uh, their, they have a master-slave relationship now. They expect they're gonna work, but they will get the salary and they will have a place to live. But the master has the ability to give a unique and amazing gift. He can give the gift of redemption. And as that slave approaches the master expecting to work for the next six years, the master hands him a redemption ticket, an actual piece of paper that has two words written on it, and those two words are for freedom. For freedom. And what that communicates to the slave is that he has been bought out of slavery 
to be set free. That the master has paid his money, he has acquired his services, not with the intention of making him serve for those six years and work hard, but for the intention of setting that slave free. Now, some of you might be saying, I thought the slave wanted to be a slave. I thought they actually wanted security of income and security of of a place to live. And the amazing thing about redemption, the reason why this word leapt off the page is because when a slave was redeemed, he would still receive the salary and he would still be given a place to live. And it would not just be for six years, it would be for the rest of the slave's life. So redemption gave all the benefits of slavery without any of the requirements. It was truly a gift of grace. Something that was undeserved, something that was unearned, something that was so big it made no economic sense that they would receive a salary, they would receive a place to live, and they would not be required to do anything in return because they are free. And that was for the rest of their life. Does redemption sound like a good thing? Does that sound like just a gift that's like, whoa, that's really big. Why would anybody do that? It was an incredible gift. It was an incredible honor. Sometimes uh, the masters would develop a relationship with a slave and they wanted to make that relationship permanent. And so they would offer them redemption. But there was no requirement that you had to first be a serving slave before you could be a redeemed slave. You could redeem a total and complete stranger simply as an act of grace. That's why when Paul uses this word redemption, it leapt off the page because he said, we know what that is. That is incredible. And Paul's saying that redemption is for the church in Rome through Jesus. The same way that he would be saying to us, that what it looks like to be a slave of Christ is to be someone who is redeemed. Not someone who is put into service and is motivated by fear and guilt and duty and obligation, but that someone who is given freedom. One of the famous passages in Galatians, Galatians 5 verse one, it echoes this idea. It says, for freedom we have been set free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery to Christ is different because it's not this oppressive thing like we were under an oppressive master of sin or we were under the oppressive rulership of the enemy. We are now set free through Jesus. That would be a good place to say amen. So the third thing that we see is that slavery to Christ looks very different. It looks different than slavery to sin or slavery to the enemy. It looks like freedom. And as someone who has been set free through Christ, there's another step in this journey that we wanna talk about. The other, the fourth thing that this accomplishes for believers is that believers are adopted as sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Galatians Chapter four, verses five through seven says it this way. It says that, speaking about Jesus, and it says that uh, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave in the old sense, in the sin sense, in the under the lordship or the leadership of the enemy, but you are now a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. So there is a transformation that takes place when you go from a, sin, a slave to sin or the enemy to a slave to Christ, and then finally attached to being that slave to Christ is that you're adopted as a son or a daughter. Because even back in the first century, when a redeemed slave was set free, when they received that redemption, very closely linked to that was the idea of adoption. Because a redeemed slave would be adopted into the master's family. And they would become a son or a daughter of the master. So you see this idea of redemption and adoption, it is, it's connected biblically. That when those slaves were redeemed, not only did they have a salary, not only did they have a place to live with the master, they had a brand new family. And when the master passed away and his inheritance, his estate was divided up, a redeemed slave would receive the same inheritance as a natural born son or daughter. That's a big gift, isn't it? Redeemed slaves actually could become wealthier than their masters because they were receiving a salary, they were gonna get an inheritance and they weren't required to serve the master. So many of them started other enterprises, other businesses. They could become very successful. But one of the interesting things is since this carries with it the idea of adoption, the way that a redeemed slave is to relate to the master is no longer as a slave because they've been bought out of that, right? They have been set free from that. They now are to relate to their new master as a son or as a daughter. And when you relate as a slave, especially in the first century, when you knew that if you were a bad slave, it was the death penalty, you would relate out of fear. Even if you had a good master, you would still be afraid that you're gonna mess up. You would be maybe at best serving out of obligation or duty or to fulfill your contract. You would have to serve the master as a slave. But as someone who is redeemed, what would motivate you to engage in a relationship with the master? It would be love. It would be gratitude. It would be thanksgiving, not fear, because there's no reason to fear. In fact, there's actually some historical stories that talk about redeemed slaves who would go and live at the master's house, which that makes sense. They get money and they have housing. It's kind of like living the dream, free money and free housing, right? And no work. But as they were in that place, they didn't just sit around and watch TV all day. They could have because they were free. But what they actually started doing is they began to help the master in the fields. They began to help around the house. They may have actually done some of the same jobs they would have done as a slave. But now they were doing it as a son or as a daughter. And the work maybe didn't change, but the motivation did. Now they serve the master because the master had been so good to them. The master had given them an incredible gift and they actually wanted to serve their master. 
As we pull back for a second and we think about this transformation that has happened of being a slave to sin or a slave to the enemy, we had no choice but to serve the master of sin before we met Christ. But now that we've met Christ and we have a new master, he has not put us under a new set of rules and bondages. He doesn't just change our slavery. He sets us free. And that freedom gives us the ability not to serve Master Jesus out of fear that we're going to get struck by the lightning bolt. If we don't do a good enough job, he's going to kill us. That's been taken care of. We have the freedom to serve Master Jesus out of love and out of gratitude and with a thankful heart. And if I were to put it plainly, I could say that the motivation has changed from having to do it to now we should want to serve Master Jesus. And all of us know that when our motivation, when we want to do something, it's much more enjoyable when somebody says you have to do this. Human nature wants to rebel when we're told we have to do something. But when we want to, when it's motivated by love, when it's a response to the kindness of God, sometimes the very same activities can be much more meaningful. So how do we live in light of this? How do we, we have been set free from a slave to a son. That's done. Jesus took care of that. The enemy is defeated. We have the event of that freedom that redemption brought. But like so many things in Christianity, something can be done, but we still need to grow into it. We still need to journey into that new reality. So we can totally say we have been set free from sin with that sin is no longer our master. But we all know that it takes time for us to live with a new master and to do less and less sin, right? We can also say that we have been set free, that we have been adopted into the family of Jesus, but it takes time for us to live as one who is a son or daughter of the king. It doesn't happen in a moment. It's a journey. So on that journey, as we look at the fact that the three enemies that damaged dwelling have been taken care of, sin has been removed, death has been destroyed, and the enemy is defeated, it gives us the ability to return to the kind of relationship that we were created for. It gives us the ability to engage with God once again, and we can do it in freedom. We can do it from the posture of being a son or daughter of the king. So how does this help remove, restore dwelling? Well, three things that it helps us with. These things remove fear. We no longer have to relate to God from a posture of fear that we're just waiting for punishment. That has been taken care of through Jesus. We are free from that. It releases us from obligation or duty. Too many people live the Christian life as if it's a big list of things that you have to do, and if you don't do it, God's going to strike you with a lightning bolt. It releases us from obligation or duty, and it releases us. It gives us more responsibility that we can respond to God and say, God, I want to follow you, even more than saying, I have to follow you. It's a response to grace. It's not something we're doing in trying to earn what can't be earned. It's a slight change, and it's that change from being a slave to being a son or a daughter. 
And this also returns us to a love-based relationship. One that's not based out of duty or fear or obligation, but one that is motivated first and foremost by our love for God. Because he first loved us. So we simply respond to the love that's been shown to us. So the question that I want to leave you with today as we consider the fact that the enemy is defeated. We've already talked about sin and death being done away with, that these obstacles to dwelling have been removed. So how can we step back into the way that we were created for? How can we return to that relationship with God that he desires for us? And I think that journey is first, it's realizing who our, what our new identity is. It's realizing that we are a new creation. It's realizing that we are now sons and daughters and no longer slaves. And the way that we do that is we continually can evaluate and ask ourselves, am I living as a son or daughter or am I living as a slave? And I think there's a little bit of slave in all of us, maybe a lot. There's a little bit of this still doing certain things because we feel like we have to or we must or we've got to somehow prove ourselves worthy to God. Somehow almost trying to improve the work of Christ. That sounds a little bit arrogant to think that we can do something that would improve the work of Christ. That when we realize we do that, just like when we realize we sin, we come to our Father and we say, you know what? I've been living like a slave. I have been acting out of fear or obligation or duty. I'm sorry, would you change my heart? And would you help me to live as a son or daughter? Would you help me to live consistent with who I now am? Help me to not live as the old creation, but to live as the new creation. And that takes time. That's not an instantaneous thing. We live in an instant society and discipleship does not happen overnight. It takes a lifetime. A lifetime of allowing God to shine his light on our hearts and show us where we're still living as a slave and we say we're sorry and then we ask the Holy Spirit's help to live consistently with who we now are. I wanna live as a son. I wanna live as a daughter. No longer motivated by fear, duty, or obligation, but motivated by love and gratitude and thanksgiving. So can we pray today? And just ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on our heart. No matter how long you've been a believer, whether it's a week or whether it's been 50 years, there is still opportunity for us to grow and to change and to be conformed more into the image of Christ, more into the way that he wants us to interact with him. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you today. We welcome you to come and in light of your word, in light of your truth, would you shine the spotlight on our heart? Would we begin to look at the things we do as a Christian? And if God, if we're doing any of them from slightly misguided reasons, reasons that a slave would do, either out of fear, or out of duty, or even just sense that this is what Christians do, so I just have to do this. Lord, would you help us to see any slave mentality in our hearts. And Lord, we wanna lay that down before you. We wanna say that we're sorry for doing that, but we wanna embrace the freedom that you've given us. We wanna embrace the freedom to function 
as a son, as a daughter, as a child of God. We want to embrace that, and we want those same activities to be renewed when they're motivated by love, by gratitude, by thanksgiving, that even some basic things like reading our Bible, it would no longer be a duty of being a Christian, but it would be a privilege that we get to know the one who loved us first. God, would you transform our hearts and help us to live the Christian life from the posture of being a son and a daughter, no longer as a slave. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to shine your light in our hearts and we ask that you would set us free from that and help us to begin to walk day by day, week by week, month by month in our new identity of who you've made us to be, a son, a daughter who has been adopted by the king. We say thank you. Have your way in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.